I'm Tom Dennis, CEO of Serenity in Leadership. We coach executives, we train leaders, and we're change makers of cultures, so organizations are best placed for success in the future. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Reut Schwarz-Hebron in our series, Exploring Leading Responsibly in a VUCA World with Integrity and Purpose. Reut's expertise is in the intersection of neuroscience and difficult change. She has trained and certified hundreds of coaches, consultants, and HR leaders to use powerful neuroscience-based models to guide people through difficult change. She started her career as a lieutenant in the Israeli army and was honored to be the first woman consultant to be offered a prestigious field position with a combat unit. She has an MBA in business and organizational development and is a published author of books and numerous articles. She's also an avid supporter of human rights. Welcome, Hoot. So, so wonderful to be with you, Tom. It's, it's great to see you again. It's such a long time since we actually were in the same room. and it, we're, it's, vir, it's virtual now, but it's still great to be with you. Um, yeah. So uh, you've kind of uh, agreed to, to answer some questions and give some of your expertise and experience. So let's go straight into it. Um, you're, you are internationally known as one of the top experts in the specific field of unlearning. What is unlearning in the context of leading in a VUCA world? Yeah, you know, when, when you bring neuroscience into difficult change, which is something that I've been fascinated by for the last 25 years or so, um, what you're starting to understand is that there are patterns already existing whenever we want to change something. So let's say, you know, we're talking about this chaotic world that we're, we're all living in right now. Things are changing. And things have changed fast all the time, but now they're changing fast with a lot more threat than before. And when that happens, people tend to go back to pre-existing patterns that they've developed anywhere from childhood to you know, recent years with their, with their families and otherwise. And the question from a neuroscience perspective isn't so much what do we want to change into, although, that's a very important question as well. But from a, an unlearning point of view, the question then becomes what pre-existing patterns are we carrying into the situation that may block us from coping effectively? And how do we, there's a process of actually letting go of those pre-existing patterns, especially ones that are related to threat, because those patterns that we've developed over the years have many, many emotional links for us. So the brain tends to prefer them. And so how do we not just focus on the new at work or at home or wherever we have to cope with things, but rather we let go of whatever we've, we've adopted in the past. So to give you a very quick example, let's say we're in a, um, you know, in a threat situation, something unpredictable has happened and we all have to um, shelter in place or we all have to stay stranded in our houses and we can't go to work. And now that means our kids are at home um, or whatever is happening that is really disruptive of everything. We don't know what's going to happen and we don't know if there are going to be shortages of food, right? Everything has shifted all of a sudden. 
in that moment in time, the, the pre-existing patterns that we've had for years and years, we're not even aware of having in terms of how we respond to threat kick in. So maybe we are um, pre-programmed, let's call it, we're pre-programmed to, to kind of shut down our emotions. Maybe we're pre-programmed, um, and I just mean pre-programmed, I mean, we've, we've practiced this for many, many years already to jump to conclusions and want to um, believe that we know really quickly without asking enough questions. There are effective ways of responding to um, threat, which requires a lot more balance, which requires us to be much more curious, right? These are things that are much more effective, collecting information, making sure that information is valid. A lot of things that are really important when we're faced with threat, mm. but we can't just switch into the effective. From a neuroscience perspective, we first have to manage those very strong pre-existing patterns that are already very well established in the brain. I'm not going to, you know, from years and years of jumping to conclusions and believing that I know without being curious, without questioning myself, I'm not simply going to jump into being curious just because someone tells me that's the right way to, to move in this new world. As a foundation, when we look at difficult change from a neuroscience perspective, unlearning comes in and says, also look at what's pre-existing, not only want to, what you want to move into. Great. I think one of the steps is just understanding that we have these patterns, that we have these neural pathways, which are, are very well established over the years, because I, 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 you know, without even that basic understanding, People are just, they live so much of their life in sort of automatic gear um, or auto, auto drive or autopilot. Um, and it's just bringing that level of awareness, which can at least enable people to say, ah, I notice and, and work from there. So, yeah, I can see that that being really, really important. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a process, the whole unlearning thing. Awareness is a really important first step, like you said. I think it's, it's, it's a critical important first step. But then it's a dedicate time to let go of the pre-existing and not just be like, okay, I'm aware this exists. Let's focus on the new. No, you also need to focus on what you brought in as you're walking in the door and, and, and understand that it's a, just as it is a process to learn something, just in the very same way, it's a process to unlearn something. And we need to understand that process so that we can move forward. Mm, mm. Okay, thank you. A another term we're hearing more of is neuroplasticity. Pl what is it and how can it help us at work? Yeah, this, this is something that um, we started talking about about 20 years ago or so started becoming very um, familiar as a term. And up until that point, we thought that um, the way, you know, people are, can change up until a certain age and beyond that, we can't change. Um, and, you know, we believe that there are certain critical periods in, in our lives where we can change. And after that, you know, whatever we've learned up until that point, you know, my, my dad regularly says, you know, I'm 70 years old. I'm not going to change anymore. Well, um, turns out <laughs> that's not true. Turns out that um, 
we still can change even at 70 and as 70 just as well as at 20. I mean, there is an initial period in the brain where um, we, we, are, we have much more capacity to learn and grow in terms of what kind of patterns we're adopting. But just because that initial map has been set doesn't mean that after 20, we can't continue to change those patterns. So first off, um, neuroplasticity means that, you know, the neurosynaptic pathways that define who we are can change for the rest of our lives. They're not set. And this is, it's super interesting because, you know, there are terms like personality that we have gotten quite attached to. I, I have a certain personality. I am, you know, certain, and we attach our identity to that, to that sense of personality. And you know what? Turns out that does not have to be the case. I mean, if, if you choose to stick with your personality, then yeah, it's, it's going to be set. Um, but in terms of neuroscience, it isn't. In, in a way, there is no such thing as a set personality. You can, you can one day be, um, for years and years, not one day, you can for years and years be non-attentive, um, you know, focused on what you're thinking and not, not listen to others or be um, brutally honest and be insensitive, right? Whatever, that those are your patterns. I'm just thinking about people who are more kind of left brain. Um, like if you think more about engineers or, or um, doctors who can be quite blunt or quite insensitive sometimes because of that left brain activity. And, and there's, a, there's a belief that this is their personality. This is their, this is their set brain. This is how they were born. And hence, this is who they are. Well, turns out that's not true. There's quite many things that we can change. There are very, actually, in fact, very few things that we can change. And we start thinking about instead of personality traits, we start thinking about skills. So who you are as a set of skills and capabilities, and in, you know, when you think about it in, in kind of a, a VUCA world, if you start thinking about resilience, not as a personality trait, but as a skill, if you start thinking about um, a growth mindset, or being attentive to people, or being patient, or you know, all those things as skills, not as personality traits, as things that you learn to practice, to adopt new habits. They're all just habits that the brain either you know, learns to ignore or learns to prefer. And it's up to our how we dedicate our attention to, to, to choose which which kind of format we turn into or we reinforce. So basically neuroplasticity just means, I guess, choose, we choose who we are through our practice and that the neurosynaptic activity in the brain follows suit, right? Whatever, whatever we reinforce, that's who we end up being. So the whole willingness to change becomes a choice. And yeah. the ability to change is, is a choice. And that could be quite uncomfortable for some people, I guess. You know, there's the, so many people say, oh, well, you know, you can't, you can't uh, teach an old dog new tricks. And um, it turns out that that's, 
just not the case. Because I think a lot of people, particularly people in more senior positions of, of a certain age, use it as a kind of excuse that they have a particular trait, which some people find rather unpleasant uh, or difficult to live with. But what you're saying is, is that it is a choice, uh, not an excuse. <laughs> Yeah, and we can't we can't depend. You know, I think the whole idea of the growth mindset um, approach, which is 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 proven from a neuroscience perspective to be true, is that it is a choice. You you can choose to see the world as you know I can't change things. Things are set the way they are, or you can believe that it's effort oriented, and then you know if you make the right effort, you will change. It will take time, but yeah, it's so much easier to assign responsibility to I can't right? This is beyond my power. Um, and neuroscience is saying, yeah, yeah, you can take that responsibility right back. Because <laughs> yes, you can, you may not want to, and there's, we can respect that. But, um, but matter of factly, you can, if you choose to. Have you explored at all um, in this context, um, addiction? You know, there's so many addictions at, at work, you know, some people are just addicted to work, but it's, it may be just a, a, a diversion from having to attend to something else in their life, or it's an addiction that, that um, dumbs down a pain. But have you, have you sort of explored that at all and, and how to go about dealing with it or helping people in that context? Yeah, so, yeah, so, you know, we kind of need to separate between two types of addictions as we're talking about addiction here. So. Um, you know, if we're talking about chemical addiction in the brain, like if you're numbing down with alcohol or um, drugs, any, any kind of, you know, something that actually changes the chemical activity in the brain in a way that creates actual chemical um, numbing, mm. that's different and that's harder than to fix. Mm. So there's still processes um, that help through that. And they don't focus as much on the chemicals as much as they focus on kind of the, the, the triggers to go get the chemical. Right. Um, th those are the ones that work best, but there are also addictions, um, you know, to work, to yeah. sex, to uh, things that are not actually chemically inhibiting your brain. Um, and then those Again, I mean, it's, it's the same. It's the same treatment in a way. The treatment that works for addiction goes back to what, like, going underneath the addiction. So rather than looking at the the actual addictive behavior, going underneath it and saying, well, what is what is triggering you to go there? Why are you not, for example, why are you not feeling safe with who you are, and you have to, or why is it very hard for you to be in a space? where you're, you know, you're threatened by something. And this is when you run to the addiction. This is why you, you, you know, you overwork because maybe you don't want to feel the feelings. You go back home and, and your spouse or your partner starts talking about emotions or, and you, the last thing you want is to be in a space where you have to now engage in emotional conversations. So you dive into work. So it's, it's more about looking into what is pushing you towards there and healing that part that works really well with addiction um, with a little asterisk that when you, well, it's a, it's a rather big asterisk, but when you're talking about chemicals in the brain that have been introduced, that creates a, a very different havoc than just, you know, being 
numbing by by staying longer at work or whatever else. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I, I, you know, I, I think that we're coming across so many people who are suffering at work today because of all the, the new things that have happened, because people don't have enough money to pay the bills, because they're terrified of getting um, the, the virus, the pandemic, uh, you know, the, the COVID again, the, the climate change, you know, that we're experiencing. All these things just create so much fear and trauma um, that people are turning to, to, to different ways to, to deal with that. And that sort of takes me on to the, the next question, really. Um, you've talked about how kindness is an important part of good business. Can you, can you tell us more about how you think kindness has an impact in business today? Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I do think that's extremely relevant in the sense that, you know, when you think about um, drug abuse or when you think about being addicted to things and running away, one of the first things you find is that people are not kind to themselves. And being kind to others is, a, is a, it's interesting, this, this term, right, kindness. What, what does it even exactly mean, kindness, to be? Um, and, and, and a lot of times people confuse kindness with being nice, being nice to other people, being um, collab, you know, being a collaborating person. But being kind is really, um, it's, like a, it's like a package of skills. It's not a standalone um, one item. And, and it includes having tremendously healthy boundaries between yourself and others, kind of knowing to define where you start and where um, other people end, being able to be kind to yourself, being able to recognize and articulate your emotions, being able to set your expectations properly, um, and being powerful enough that if your expectations are not met or you're met with one-sidedness on the other part, that you can still protect yourself. Because if you can't protect yourself when other people are crossing your boundaries, um, then, and, I, and I'm not saying protecting yourself by attacking them, but just protecting yourself. If you do that, you're eventually going to not like this kindness approach and you're going to flip. You're going to flip into um, being unkind, being disrespectful. So this whole process of being respectful to yourself and respectful to others, especially when there's so much pressure coming from the outside is hugely helpful, especially in a time um, when stress is high because kindness is actually regulating. It's a, it's a regulating ability. If I can be kind to myself and kind to others, I'm not as triggered. And what happens in the brain is that when I'm, when I'm triggered, my, my prefrontal cortex, which is the part that thinks in a you know, logical, rational manner, gets disconnected, if you will, from um, the part in our brain where the, the limbic system, which is more emotionally processing and able to be present and able to be connected to other people. So when, when there's a lot of distress in, in the environment, if you don't have what we, we're, we're gonna call kindness, Right, which is respecting yourself, respecting others, it is literally chemically regulating in the brain to do that, to be of um, respect to yourself and others. 
And when you do that, you're maintaining the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, which means that your logic and your common sense and what you think rationally is connected to your emotions and to um, kind of processing being in the moment and being attentive. Those work together. If you don't have that, you're going to have either a version that's kind of cold and logical because the prefrontal cortex takes over and you're shutting down your limbic system, or you're gonna be hyper emotional and your emotions are going to dictate all your decisions when the prefrontal cortex, like the limbic system takes over the prefrontal cortex instead. So kindness is like, a, it's like, a, it's like the, the magic, you know, the magic pill that you take in order to maintain that congruency. And especially, especially for leaders, to have that, um, but but I will just say one more thing about it. It's really, really important that we don't think about kindness as a weak feature, mm. as an accommodating, um, you know, self-suppressing kind of um, attitude towards ourselves or others. Kindness is a very powerful presence that respects the other, respects myself, understands my boundaries, is very comfortable being together with another person, with their feelings, with their needs, but at the same time, very comfortable, if needed, making the other person uncomfortable because sometimes there's a negotiation between your needs and my needs, and that's, and that's okay. That's okay, done respectfully. And, and to me, that's kindness. So kindness is not this nicey-nice, you know, um, let me be all about you kind of approach. Mm. Yes, you, you, it, you paint a, a much more complex picture than, than most people think about. So uh, here's a big question. <laughs> I'm sure you'll choose little bits of it. What should we do with people who, who don't want to change? <laughs> yeah, that is... That is a pretty big um, question, a very big answer to that question. But yeah, we, we can focus about, uh, we can focus on a few things just to kind of stay centered for our discussion. You know, so I think part of the issues with transformation over the years has been that we kind of define everybody in the same bucket. So, People who want to change, who are engaged, who are vulnerable, who are willing, go in the same bucket in the terms of how we approach them, in the same bucket as people who don't want to go, don't want to be vulnerable, don't want to engage, don't think whatever change other people are asking of them is necessary. Um, you know, and, and we kind of we kind of put all that together and we say, well, let's offer all of you training or let's offer all of you coaching, or, um, you know, and the truth is that while these approaches work beautifully for those who are vulnerable and are open and are willing, they do not work for people who are actively um, not interested in, in changing. And, and to say that they're not interested in changing, it's important to understand that a lot of times it isn't because they're so mind about um, the new thing that they're asked to move into. 
It's not that the new thing that they're asked to do is so very hard for them or so upsetting for them, or they really, really don't want to move into that space, but more because of their own way of processing their discomfort. So when you're asking someone to change, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to feel discomfort. This has to do with the unlearning that we talked about in the very beginning, because now you have to let go of pre-existing patterns. And that's not, you're not gonna like that. Right? None of us, by the way, none of us like that. But also it means you're gonna need to move into a space where maybe someone else is telling you what to do or someone else is guiding you, or you know, even the new reality is guiding you. It's not even a new person, but just a reality that you don't like and you kind of need to surrender to the fact that this is now the new reality, right? So what happens for those people in that moment is that their pre-existing patterns of how they react to this are activated. And those patterns are not ones where, so if you work with a coachable person, we, that's, that's what we call the people. We, we lovingly um, separate into coachable and non-coachable in, in, in my practice. And when you're talking to a coachable person and when they come into this moment of discomfort with the change, what they're going to do is they're going to have enough vulnerability and curiosity to go like, oh, what just happened? Let's talk more about that. I'm willing to touch that discomfort a little bit to move forward. Well, when you do the same thing, you, you hit that moment of discomfort needing to move forward and you know, recognize that something isn't working and, and look into it with someone who we lovingly call non-coachable. Non-coachable simply because coaching won't work in their, in their context, right? What, they're, what you're gonna face there is they're going to have a variety of dysfunctional responses to that discomfort. So they'll, they'll say, that's not true. I don't need to do that. I don't want to talk about it. Um, th this is not really because they're reacting to what you're saying. They're reacting to their own patterns of how they deal with discomfort. Mm. So the first, I'm trying to make this quick, yes, but the first thing we need to understand about supporting people who obviously don't want to change is that the most important thing to look at is not the change, but their patterns of response to discomfort and that that needs to be addressed first and foremost. And because adjusting someone's response to discomfort is in itself a change, right? That's in itself transformation. For that initial step, for people to have healthier response patterns to discomfort, you have, if they're, if they're in the non-coachable world, um, you need to have a healthy accountability structure. And I'm, I'm not gonna, it would take us another half hour just to talk about what a healthy accountability structure is, but at least start thinking about the fact that it cannot be done with simply traditional models. You, you need an accountability structure there because these people don't have a reason to want to change their dysfunctional patterns. They, they, they have served them so well for so many years. So you're going to need an accountability structure in addition to the traditional coaching that you're you're thinking about if that's the approach you're taking. Well, I, I think that gives a 
a really good frame for people to think about. So thank you for that. Um, to finish off, can, can you give um, our listeners and viewers two of your top tips on how uh, we can best guide people through difficult periods of change when there's so much hardship and anxiety in the world at the moment? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, yeah. I'd say my first tip would be that these patterns, these, these effective ways of coping with the world, they, they need to be very, very deep. They need to be subconscious and they need to be um, accessible to the limbic system, not just to the prefrontal cortex. So if you're going about engaging in becoming more resilient or becoming uh, more balanced in the face of you know, a VUCA world or a changing world or a threatening world or whatever, it's really important that you integrate those skills at an emotional level, not at an intellectual level. And that means practice. It means experiencing it over and over again, and preferably in small doses and away from the main threat. Because if you start practicing um, new effective ways of, of reacting to discomfort in the context of a big threat, and you're not prepared, you will have, um, you know, what, what Daniel Siegel calls your, your, you'll flip your lid. In other words, your, your prefrontal cortex will be disengaged or not sufficiently engaged with your limbic system. And there we go. We don't have successful learning and successful transformation. So do it in an experienced way, not just sitting in a room and thinking about it and reading books, but actually engaging in little practices and do it in small doses away from the main threat. So that would, be, that would be a really great thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that there is no change without discomfort. And so it's really important, even though I said, don't dive into the big discomfort right away, right? Don't go into like trying to learn how to navigate this with your biggest obstacle or your most threatening, you know, your most threatening um, situation is when you talk to your manager, your supervisor, every time you talk to her, it's absolutely threatening for you. And, you know, you're trying to learn how to be more assertive. Don't start by trying to learn it there. <laughs> it's not a good idea to start learning it there. Small doses of that skill, um, in, in less threatening areas would be much, much wiser. The second thing to understand, like I said, is that, is that the discomfort is very important. So whatever you're choosing to navigate in those small doses before you go talk to that very threatening manager, let those be somewhat discomforting, somewhat unpleasant, so that you can work through that and improve. If there's no discomfort, there's no growth. It doesn't need to be huge discomfort, um, but a little bit of discomfort is what, what generates the growth. So th those would be my best immediate instant. Um, <laughs> here, take this in your kit and get started. <laughs> well, Hout, um, we've run out of time, but uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm really grateful for you uh, having shared some of your experience and ideas. And also, um, I think for some people, reframing some, some old beliefs, 
which um, you know, in 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 terms of neuroscience, you, 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 people have found that they just they're not true, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's part of learning that uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks. So that's a that's a very positive, uh, really, uh, outlook and outcome. So thank you so so much. If uh, if people are sort of interested and want to understand more. Um, about you and your work, how, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, I, I love connecting on LinkedIn. So for me, that's the best space. And it's, I, don't, I don't remember what my URL is, but Rayud Schwartz Hebron is not a very common um, name to find. Um, or as you beautifully pronounce it, Rayud Schwartz Hebron is not, it's not common. Um, so I would love to connect on LinkedIn. And we have a group on LinkedIn that discusses neuroscience and difficult change for change leaders. So if anyone's interested in that, I don't know how many of, of the people listening to this are interested in um, learning more about facilitating change, but, but that's what we talk about there. And just in general, you know, um, I love connecting with like-minded people and I'm really, really grateful for this space. Thank you so much, Tom, for, for having me. Well, we are in a very disturbed and anxious making time. So I think that um, hearing from experts like you can really help some people. And that's what we want to do. So thank you again. I look forward to when we, uh, we meet again. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you. <laughs>